It's Monday the 15th of February 2021. My name's Alex Elliott and you're listening to The Week in Iceland, the programme that asks what's been happening in Iceland this week, why it happened and why we should care. I'm joined this week by the Ruv broadcast journalist Ingolver Bjarni Sefusson. Welcome to you. Hey Alex, nice to see you. Yeah, likewise, uh, in the studio for a change. Yes, indeed. Um, Drinking hey. some bad workplace coffee for the first time in a long time. <laughs> I like the... Anyway, right, the headlines. (laughs) Um, The biggest story this week was probably the news that the uh, Pfizer herd immunity research proposal, which would have seen most of the nation vaccinated against COVID-19 in a short time frame, has been dropped. Uh, At the same time, though, news has emerged that Iceland will be receiving more vaccines in the coming weeks and months than previously stated. A man was shot dead this weekend uh, in a East Reykjavik suburb. The death is believed to be related to criminal underworld activity. One man has been remanded in custody until at least Friday. After the first weekend open in more than four months, a couple of bars are likely to face fines over anti-contagion rule breaches, but the authorities are generally pleased with how things worked out and say it is clear bar owners know what's at stake and are taking things seriously. The head of the Directorate of Labour believes the worst of the unemployment crisis has probably now been reached, um, but she stopped short of predicting when the situation will start to get better again. A new report paints a cautiously bright picture of Iceland's domestic food security, uh, while also pointing out areas for improvement. The Supreme Court of Iceland this week ruled in favour of two appeals court judges who were overlooked for the role by the previous Justice Minister. And the city of Reykjavik has announced extra funding and extra services to help children with different native languages perfect their Icelandic skills, which is seen as a precursor to success in all other school subjects as well. So, where would you like to begin? Well, how about we start with crime? Crime, yeah. Because it was an unusual murder. Murders in Iceland are very rare to begin with. We have one or two per year. We have years where there are no murders. Mm -hmm. And then uh, we have a man shot. Uh, in front of his home. Do we killed. know it was his home? It was his home. Okay. Um, it was his home. Um, not quite in broad daylight, but close to it, and uh, seemingly, at least according to some news reports, in a criminal gang-related, uh, well, basically murder. Mm. A man has been arrested or reprimanded in custody, Uh a short while later, both are of uh, Albanian descent. Mm. But it's it's a new thing. I can't remember a an execution-style killing in Iceland ever. Most Icelandic murders tend to be sort of... Crimes of passion. Crimes of passion or, or you know, people quite a, very heavily under the influence of, of alcohol or drugs. Uh, premeditated murders, uh, very rare. And, and I, I honestly can't remember anything of this sort ever having happened. Mm. And it'll be interesting to see in the coming days is if this leads to a discussion about uh, organized criminality, which police have been talking about for a while. Uh, Iceland, just like any other country, I mean, we're a member of the Schengen Zone, which means people come and go. Uh, we have the same criminal bands that we have in, in the rest of Europe. Mm. Uh, the distinction between an Icelandic crime syndicate and an, and an Albanian or, or whatever is... Uh, Really, it's not really a distinction. These these crimes, these gangs have melted or basically fused a long time ago. So it'll be interesting to see if this leads to a discussion about the nature of crime, criminality. If if police have the resources they need, uh, if we uh, as parts of the public are aware enough of the stuff going on around us, etc. Mm. But it's certainly something new here. I mean. 
sometimes the discussion around the criminal underworld in Reykjavik specifically almost has a romantic sheen to it. It's certainly the subject of a lot of novels and, and, and TV programs and things. Mm-hmm. Um, and maybe that's because it's not been close enough to people. It hasn't affected people enough. And th- something like this does sort of shake you awake on a quite a nice residential street in the east of the city. Yeah, la la. absolutely. I mean, yeah, it's real now. <laughs> it not- looks like a scene from one of those movies or books that have come out in recent years where you always go like, <laughs> you know, we have to giggle a little bit because it doesn't really... Uh, sort of gelled with the reality or the perception of reality that most of us have. Um, but, you know, things certainly seem to have changed and this is a manifestation of that, I believe. And we know it exists as well. I mean... Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, there's... I mean, everything you find in another city of, a, you know, 200,000 people, a capital city, mm. the only city uh, you will find here, um, you know, there will be... St- <laughs> sort of variations but um, in essence it's the same mm. it's not quite Malmö but it's certainly not uh, you know Shangri-La without crime mm. it was only last week that we were talking on this show about how rare it is for Icelanders to be murdered and we were talking about a different one then I mean very very different circumstances that one was in Denmark um, mm-hmm. obviously no link between them but uh, yeah it, short between the two t- the two news stories there that's true, and it, I don't know if that this applies to every country or every society of a, probably a society of a similar size as Iceland, where a murder, as a single murder, is is headline news, and everyone is talking about it. In many places, uh, a murder is just part of what happens every day, and it doesn't really call for the attention that it garners here. But it certainly, yes, a murder is something that people are are shocked by mm. every time, no matter what the circumstances, and it's it's. Uh, Shortly, what people sit around in the hot pots discussing in the morning. Mm. Is it relevant um, that both men are Albanian, um, and and is it reasonable that that came out in the news so quickly? Mm-hmm. Like it's, such an it's always detail. a question. I mean, we as journalists, we always get asked why either we mentioned the nationality of a person involved in crime or an accident or whatnot, or we tell or say that they're not local or. We mentioned that they're Icelandic, and it's always a question of the re- of relevance. Uh, in this case, there's certainly, I mean, uh, Albanians, fairly or unfairly, are s- certainly a group that has been linked in Europe and and uh, and, and in Iceland to crime. Um, that these gentlemen, uh, the murder victim and the perpetrated, mur- the, the the suspected murder, were of Albanian descent or Albanians. I think in this context uh, is relevant. Now, that's not saying that this may not turn out to be uh, more mundane, shall we say, than it look, looks like in, in, in at, at first, mm. and that their nationality will in the end turn out to be irrelevant. But if this is indeed something related to organized crime, and uh, there is no denying the fact that that uh, a significant number of Albanians in Iceland uh, have been linked to crime, uh, than that it's relevant. Mm. Obviously, it doesn't make um, the average Albanian on the street feel very good. Absolutely not. And I understand if they feel uncomfortable uh, by the, the, the supporting and... Uh, and it goes for Albanians as it goes for almost every other group in Iceland uh, that is of, of non-Icelandic descent, that they tend to be 
the major victims of crimes perpetrated by their own. Uh, they're the ones that are game, being pressed for money by gangs from wherever, mm. uh, which is probably yet another reason why Icelanders are sort of somewhat unaware of the scope and nature of these gangs, because they're not going after Icelanders, they're going after other Polish or Albanian or Lithuanian or whatever they may be. Okay. Um, as is so often the case with these sorts of stories, especially early on, there isn't a great deal we can really talk about further, True. I don't think. So maybe we should move on to a different topic. Um, and where would you like to go with that? Um, obviously, there's the usual COVID-related stories. Well, I um, mean, you know, it's hard to hard to do, go, go through the stories of the week without mentioning COVID. Mm. Um, How big of a shock was it to you personally, the Pfizer news? I was always a skeptic um, uh, for several reasons. One, there's been a relative shortage of vaccine from whatever producer. Pfizer uh, and Moderna have had spats with the EU because they won't be able to deliver mm. uh, the, the, the amounts that they were supposed to. And it, under those circumstances, it felt unlikely that it would be politically acceptable that Iceland will all of a sudden get half a million doses. Mm. At the same time, you're talking about tens of millions of shortfall elsewhere. That's true. So. I mean, you know, drop in a bucket, certainly the number of doses Iceland would have received, but it would possibly have made people, I think it would quite obviously have made, say, the Scandinavians a little bit uh, irritated. Mm. Um, at the same time, uh, if it was a scientific experiment, what, what exactly were we trying to establish with that experiment? That was always a little unclear. What was, are they, you know, are they checking out herd immunity? We have to open the border so people could stream in here with whatever variants they might have uh, to see if we as a nation that have been immunized were indeed immune. What were we trying to find out? And how, and what kind of experiment can you indeed conduct when there is almost no cases to report it? I believe this is the third day in a row where we have no locally transmitted cases of COVID in Iceland. Which is the stated reason why the research didn't go indeed. ahead. And that makes perfect sense. Yeah. How can you how can you how can you conduct research based on a certain disease going around when it's not really going around? Mm. And in that sense Iceland is of course extraordinarily lucky. And the fact that we have to wait a little for a little bit for vaccines, well, you know, it's not like we're living with huge restrictions over on our life. No, we're very lucky, and uh, may we <clears throat> may that continue, and that probably brings Indeed. us on to the border, um, the border controls, and the possible further relaxations before the third of March. Um, yes, it's interesting. I mean, uh, I believe the chief epidemiologist has uh, come up with the new recommendations for the Minister of Health to, to look into. So, by the end of today or tomorrow, I'm sure we will have some news about what relaxations mm. uh, within Iceland are possible. That might mean more people are able to go to the gym, go to the theater, go to the swimming pool. Uh, I don't know if they will up open pubs and restaurants beyond 10 o'clock in the evening mm. for the time being. At the same time, I wouldn't be surprised if they have even stricter controls on the borders. There's been discussions of um, currently people have basically are mandated to go through a swap test go for five days into quarantine and then have a second test. And if they're negative on both tests, they're fine. They can go go about their business. We've had instances of people cheating and not going into quarantine, which, of course, raises the, the possibility of those people being infected and 
bringing the the virus back into Iceland where it seems to be more or less gone. Which has happened in the past. It's certainly yeah. what has happened in yeah. the past, sadly. So now they're talking about adding another layer, uh, requiring people to have a negative COVID test before they even get on board a plane to come to Iceland. Mm. Would uh, that be the only, would we be the only country doing that at the moment? I know um, a lot of countries are ordering the uh, requiring that test beforehand. I think there are several countries that actually do require you to do that, and there's even discussions in the US. I know that the CDC has recommended against it for the time being that you might even have to have a negative test for in, uh, to travel between or fly between states. And there's also a few countries that are doing the border testing like Iceland, but I don't think any are doing both. Um, I'm not quite sure, but at the same time, I I think there's I think the latest number that I've seen of of about the number of people that come here with planes that turn out to be infected is about one percent, so it's very low. At the same time, we've certainly had around Christmas time and shortly after Christmas a very high number of people coming in on flights that were infected and had to go into quarantine. And there's always the question of if you're sick and you're on a plane, are you infecting others? So I suppose, you know, if you have COVID, and we certainly know that some people have it and they have no symptoms, they have no clue, mm. uh, it makes sense to have a test before you go on a plane and start infecting others, possibly. And what about the other potential um, addition, additional rule is the the option to force people to spend their quarantine in the quarantine centre? Yeah. I mean, that's what the, the British are doing, I believe now, that you have to go into a quarantine hotel. And they're charging you. Oh, nice. Yeah. Well, I, you know, um, <clears throat> um, it'll be interesting to see if that is among the suggestions that the chief epidemiologist makes and what his ratification or, or, or logic for that is. Um, you know, the police may have a better idea. And we've certainly heard from the border uh, or the police in, in Keflavik, where the international airport is, that they have, that they say that they have had problems with people not uh, going to quarantine as mandated and not following the rules. And if that is indeed the case, um, although they don't really have data, mm. well, if that is the case, then I suppose it does make a certain amount of sense to force people into a quarantine hotel, although it does seem also quite harsh. Um, it also raises questions that, because they're saying, obviously it wouldn't be for everybody, they couldn't they couldn't and wouldn't want to do it for everybody. But if the, if the suspicion is there that they will break quarantine, mm -hmm. how do you well, find that out? Yeah, indeed. How do looking, you find out? Looking at someone? <laughs> yeah, indeed. Um, you know, does it apply to people who are coming here as tourists? I believe currently around 11% of people coming in uh, on flights are tourists. Most are, are Icelanders or people who live in Iceland coming from abroad, having visited family or whatnot, or people coming here to visit family, which apparently doesn't count them as tourists, mm. or people coming in on short-term short assignments, uh, which is a very low number. But only 11% are tourists, so... And that's 11% out of, what, 300 people a day or something? It's, it's not very, very much. very insignificant. Certainly, uh, I mean, I, I haven't had many flights. Well, probably have more flights than most Icelanders in recent months, but uh, on empty planes, which is really nice. <laughs> Yeah, I'll miss that when I have to start flying in, you know, really full cattle class again. Yeah. <laughs> having not just not having someone in the middle seat is actually quite nice. But um, I don't know. I mean, it's 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 a very low number, as you say, of people coming in. It was a higher number during or just following Christmas. Um, and then I know that the authorities were obviously very nervous about uh, infections sort of seeping through when people weren't behaving. So. Mm -hmm. um, 
it'll it'll be our and the media job. We will have to interrogate the authorities if they want to uh, do these mandatory quarantine hotel visits or or, or mandatory quarantine hotel stays um, to explain what exactly is it that mm. they feel is necessary. Now it's obvious that Iceland Iceland has not, as far as I know, and we sequence a lot of the the, the everyone who basically who has a swap. They they get sequenced uh, if they uh, they're positive or their virus gets sequenced. So we know which strains we have, yeah. and we don't have. As far as I know, we've had a couple of cases of the British strain, but it doesn't seem to have spread. The South African, the Brazilian strains, uh, all of these strains are reportedly both more contagious and, and in the British case also more deadly. Uh, it certainly makes sense for the authorities to do everything to keep them out. Um, because because Iceland is such a small society, as soon as we have a couple of cases, we have the possibility of, of, having, of having a spike. I mean, it happened amazingly quickly, wouldn't you agree? Mm-hmm. This fall, I mean, we had two cases and then 12 cases, and then it just sort of exploded. Mm. Uh, mm. And if we have those variants, uh, that's certainly something, especially considering the slow rollout of, of vaccines in Iceland as in the rest of Europe, something that we would and probably should try to avoid. Yeah, and we look at a place like New Zealand, which has yeah. just put Auckland into three days of complete lockdown over two cases, indeed, or three cases, and they're being lauded for it. Yeah, yeah, and, and I, I, I haven't t- taken a look at the latest sort of economic data, but it was interesting to compare this fall, you know, Sweden where they did nothing, versus New Zealand versus say Taiwan or the rest of Europe, and there wasn't a huge. Economics. I mean, Sweden wasn't doing massively better than, say, New Zealand, which closed everything down. Mm. Um, it didn't seem to be a massive difference in GDP or whatever you, measurement you wanted to use. So, um, maybe then we should move on to the unemployment, since you just mentioned that precise point. Um, unemployment is horrible, uh, way too high, the highest mm. on record, I believe. Certainly higher than during the banking crisis. Eleven point six percent, I believe it was the number. Yeah, which is uh, for, especially for Iceland, which is used to to closer to two percent. Um, pretty yeah. pretty bad. Um, but maybe maybe it's peaked. That's well, we'll see. Thing. I mean, it's interesting to say that they seem to think it has peaked. Um, I I'd, I'd have to dive into their analysis of why they say that because I don't know if, I don't know which sectors they think are about to start growing again, mm-hmm. or if they simply think that 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 people of of you know, people that move to Iceland for jobs will simply give up now and move away because, you know. Well, it was the head of the, the Directorate of Labour. Um, I think her point was that the effect of COVID is now being fully felt. So right. it's not going to get worse. She wasn't, she did specifically stop say, saying when it's going to get better. better. Yeah. Well, that probably makes sense. I mean, you know, I mean, Iceland, like in other places, a very large por- portion of the uh, unemployment comes from tourism and sort of related industries. Um, it seems to be, I believe The Economist just this, this Thursday uh, was forecasting that tourism would be among the sectors that would be the last sort of to kick in mm. once things get better. It would take a while to uh, to go back to quote-unquote normal. Uh, I believe that specialists were saying that flight travel might reach 2019 levels by 2024, so it'll take a while, which probably means that those jobs won't come back fully until at least then. Um, I suppose, I mean, I, I don't think there are any indications that things should be, are, are getting worse here, that, that there's, you know, there are sectors that are about to collapse. Mm. Uh, those people that have been furloughed or laid off 
probably have been by now. So I suppose that that doesn't sound unreasonable to think that we might stay at these 11 to 12 percent percent unemployment for a while. Mm. So it's kind of a, yeah, it sounds positive on the surface, but it's not really. It's, it's just not going to get any worse. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, um, it'll be interesting as soon as, I mean, uh, I haven't taken a look at the um, economic data coming out of places like Israel, where they have a very high number of, of people uh, that have been vaccinated. But it'll be interesting to see those countries that sort of jumped the queue and uh, and got there ahead of us. Mm. I mean, Israel, they, if they obviously do better on other factors than just the number of people getting COVID. Yeah. And Israel markets itself quite strongly as a tourist destination. Indeed. Uh, especially Tel Aviv. It'd be very interesting to see if that sees a spike of visitors. Uh, Indeed. Um, or if it would even be allowed. I don't know what their border rules, uh, rules are. Right. Yeah. I mean, maybe... I, yeah, I, I, neither do I, honestly. Mm. Quite a different destination to Iceland. Um, yeah. Slightly um, warmer. Slightly warmer. The May... Restriction easing at the border um, still on still on course, even even if we make them harder next week or whatever, they're still on course to relax at the first of May at, at the moment uh, for people from green and orange countries, of which there aren't any at the moment. Right. Yeah, that's <laughs> like saying you know if you have spiky hair and and uh, and uh, spiky orange hair, you can come in, but there aren't any with spiky orange hair traveling. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, May in, in in this regard is a long time away. At least that's what it feels like. I mean, we're in the middle of February, so we have two and a half months. Anything can happen in the meantime. You know, if if certainly the chief epidemiologist talks about us getting more vaccines than we thought a week or two or three ago, mm. when again we thought we would have less than we were originally supposed to have, so I honestly don't know how much we're going to have. Uh, if you have a decent level of vaccination by May in Iceland and elsewhere, I suppose you might have the circumstances where you think that it's okay. Uh, there certainly will be a lot of pressure from the tourism industry to open up so they have time to market Iceland and try to get people in for the summer. Mm. We've had the head of Iceland there saying, you know, if, if this summer becomes a no-go season again, uh, it'll be very difficult for them. They will basically have to draw on 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 basically the state. They will need government assistance for all practical terms and matters. I feel like other parts of the sector, though, are pretty positive about... I'm not positive necessarily, but if, if it's another Icelandic travel summer, mm-hmm. at least they want the restrictions in Iceland to be pretty open and people to be able to travel. Go, Within the country. Exactly. Yes. So if they open up too early and the virus comes back in and we're on lockdown, that's bad for everyone. And that seems... It's, it's interesting because the tourism industry were among those that pressed very hard for everything to be open as quickly as possible in the spring and in the fall and and when we had those earlier spikes and i think they they might regret that lobbyism right now because what we got and what you know the first tourist was a sick tourist you know uh, um which basically just prolonged the misery here um so i'm yeah it's it, it's probably i mean if you're iceland there and and your business is flying people back and forth and you have empty planes um, then you probably want things opened or, 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 or loosened. If you run a smaller sized business and you think it might actually do quite well if Icelanders travel around this summer, or at least you might survive, you might not be pushing as hard because if you have another lockdown, that's going to hurt you more than anything. Think of 
glacier trips and and, and yeah, adventure whatever, tours just and all these small restaurants. Things. Yeah, I mean these these chains might suffer more because they they have, you know these large companies they they have these organized slightly more expensive tours that cater almost exclusively to international travelers. Mm. Uh, but you do have other companies, restaurants, smaller hotel, you know whatever that uh, are aiming for Icelanders. And I'm sure the larger ones are also thinking, you know, what can we offer Icelanders that haven't really been been among our clientele uh, so far? Mm, it's interesting. We are running out of time. Very quickly, um, would you like to talk about language teaching or the Supreme Court ruling for Landsbrettur? Well, let's let's talk about language teaching because it's it's interesting. We have, I think that's yet, yet another topic where most Icelanders are, are sort of unaware of the high percentage of... Uh, people of non-Icelandic origin whose native tongue is not Icelandic who live here, you know, who've lived here for a while, who pay taxes here, who work here, who are an essential part of the society and yet struggle uh, because they don't speak the language and Iceland, like any other country, even if Icelanders generally speak decent English, mm. having an understanding of the language is really key to any society. And it's interesting that, you know, we have schools where we have a majority of, of pupils, not many schools, but a few, that have don't have Iceland as the first language. And we've struggled for probably close to 20 years now trying to help those kids both retain the language that is their original first language, but also get a grasp of Icelandic so they can function. And that's a, sh that's a shame. That is... Uh, I don't think that's really respecting their rights as, as citizens of the society mm. and also means that they are not able to contribute to the extent that they would be otherwise. Uh, but it's an interesting, I mean, you know, there's a there's a very, the discussion about these latest proposals seems to be quite um, vibrant. There's those who think that this is a good idea, sort of putting them basically into special classes. Others say you're putting them back into sort of ghettoized special classes, which we abandoned years ago because it wasn't working out. And I think maybe this is illustrating more than anything else just the lack of of easy ways and the lack of teachers who are who have the specialization to to handle this, whether it be in a special class or within a general class. Mm. But that means that these trouble. kids keep trouble. losing out, yeah. and society keeps losing out on and you know the fruits of the, that were bare if they were. And if their Icelandic isn't great, then they're also not going to be learning as much in maths and science and geography. Absolutely. And, you know, and the likelihood of them going to a junior college or mentaskoli and going on to university or even just becoming a, a, a carpenter, we also have to know the language, yeah. uh, or a plumber or an electrician, which we desperately need. Um, you know, it limits anything you can do. It also means that your ability to report if you are being abused, if you are... or partaking in elections or just being a functioning member of society, it means that you have, you struggle to do that. Mm. And uh, we certainly know from Scandinavian examples that that doesn't lead to anywhere where you want to be. So it certainly is something that uh, I think is, is important for society, not just for the people who are not Icelandic or native speakers, but for everyone to find a way to improve this. Mm. How much difference does it increased funding to this educational provision make is if you say there's a shortage of teachers that are uh, willing and able to, to provide the teaching. Well, I, we've seen, I think that probably 
connects to the larger issues at schools uh, when it concerned to... We've seen that especially boys in schools in Iceland struggle. Mm. They struggle with reading, but they also struggle with math. Girls do better. And there are obviously some problems that we face that don't only pertain to people of uh, different origin or people of, of, of non-native Icelandic speakers, but just to how we're doing in school generally. That has to some extent to do with teacher education and the quality of teachers that we're uh, able to attract to to do this job. And, mm-hmm. this, and, and probably also just how, you know, things like class size and whatnot, which has been an issue since I was at grammar school, and that's a while ago. It does seem that results from uh, studies send, tend to show that children in Iceland quite like school in comparison to other countries and that they do well at school, but maybe that their academic results at the end of it are not as strong as they would be in a lot of other countries. Mm-hmm. So it's yeah. so I think uh, it would probably be a great idea to see how we can sort of revamp and, or tackle these issues that need to, be, need to be tackled not as individual issues, but as a sort of a revamp of the system mm. where we also tackle students who have other first languages at the same time. Indeed. Well, uh, seems like a appropriate moment to uh, to call it a day. Uh, the Week in Iceland will be back next Monday, the 27th, uh, 22nd of February on roof.is forward slash English, Roof English on Facebook through the Roof app and your favourite podcast platform. Huge thanks to my guest today, Ingolver Bjarni-Sigfosson, and also to Lydia Gretestotir for running the technical side of things. We finished today with Emiliana Torini singing Verte Ulvur, which is one of two songs with the same lyrics released in conjunction with the National Theatre production of the same name. The other, if you're wondering, is by Prince Polo. Bye for now. <laughs> Svinna hugar angur, og ég vil að þú vitir 
Sólargullið inn 